Well, good morning again. It's good to see you. I tend to think I sound nasally anyway, but um, it's amplified this morning with this head cold. So uh, rest assured, I I won't handle the bread a little bit later. I'm going to leave that to those who are helping serve uh, this morning, but um, hence hence the voice and and the noise. Uh, Glad to have you here this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, if you would, open them with me to the book of Romans. We're continuing our study in Romans. Uh, We're going to be reminding ourselves of verse 11 this morning, as, as well as moving into verses 17 through 29. So Romans 2, verse 11, but also verses 17 through 29. If you don't have your Bible with you, you'll find the passage printed for you uh, in your bulletin. As we're kind of getting situated, and as you're finding your place in, in, your, in your text, we find ourselves, again, in this section of, of Romans that's, uh, that's pretty heavy. I mean, we're, we're trying to state this uh, up front. I'm not trying to surprise anybody here. Uh, these first three chapters are very heavy. They, they speak of language of, of wrath, uh, of judgment, of, of God's fury. Um, and any attempt to kind of circumvent those, those topics, you really, you really stop preaching Romans. Uh, and as Brian has said on a number of occasions, as other commentaries have said, you know, Romans 1 through 3 is, is the bad news. It really is the bad news about the human condition. And Paul begins Romans by speaking you know, to everybody, humans alike, saying, we as human beings, we're all guilty. There's, there's no one righteous. Uh, and then later, in, in, in earlier in chapter 2, Paul kind of narrows his focus a little bit. And he speaks to the Gentiles. He speaks to those outside the church. Well, this morning, Paul's kind of putting down the shotgun, you know, this, this wide blast, this, this peppering of, of, of humanity. And, and he picks up the sniper rifle, so to speak. And, and there's a certain group, there's a certain group of people that he's going to put in the crosshairs. And so the question for us this morning is, who is it? And why are they in his crosshairs? Well, let's find out together. This is Romans chapter 2, again, beginning in verse 11, and then we're going to jump to verse 17 uh, through 29. Uh, This is God's word. Let's read together. For God shows no partiality, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law... And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This ends reading of God's word. Let's pray together. 
Lord, would you indeed show yourself uh, merciful to us again? For Lord, what wisdom do we have that has not come from you? What insight, what knowledge do we have that hasn't been granted to us by you? Lord, our ears are stopped, our hearts are hard, our eyes have scales over them. And Spirit, would you attend to us? Would you be merciful to us as you inspired these men long ago to write these words from your hand? Would you now illumine us? Give us minds, hearts, ears to truly understand what it is you would have us know this morning. That we might glorify and make much of this man, Jesus Christ, for his glory and for his name's sake, we pray. Amen. Well, spring has indeed sprung in Greenville, has it not? Um, uh, the lilies are popping up uh, in my yard, my, my tulips are about to bloom, the grass, we're starting to see early signs of life, and this is good news uh, in the Patton House, we love spring, uh, and just the other day, uh, Lacey and I were driving up East North Street, and we were just coming up on the intersection of, of Howell and East North Street, uh, and, and lining the, the, the southwest corner of that intersection is a row of Bradford pears, uh, and we're still a couple hundred yards out, and Lacey says, look at those trees, and, and you know, it was, it, it's glorious. This was on Tuesday. Remember Tuesday? Tuesday was 75 degrees, the sun was warm, the air was cool, we had the windows down, we had the music going. Life was great, right? And we're coming up on these trees, and Lacey said, there are so many blooms on there, it looks like the tree has snow on it. And I said, yeah. Um, and it was just the perfect day. And then something spoiled it. One of our other senses kind of kicked in, and it was the sense of smell. Have you ever smelled a Bradford pear before? Have you ever smelled a dumpster behind a seafood restaurant in August in Florida? That's what Bradford pears smell like. They're awful. And it's a shame, too, because these trees are, these trees are beautiful. They provide you know, great shade. And you know, after, after the blossoms form, they get these, these red ornamental fruit on them. Um, and in the fall, uh, when they, the leaves start to change color, first they're yellow, and then they're orange, and then they're red, and they're beautiful trees. But in the spring, when these blossoms come and this smell is exuded from the trees, it kind of spoils the spring. And so we kind of had this moment of just like, you're messing with our spring here, Bradford pear. All right, you're, you're, you're cramping our mojo here, so to speak. Well, the same thing is, is happening in our passage uh, this morning. And, and Paul, who is like a, a spiritual and theological bloodhound, he can, he can smell something foul from, from hundreds of yards away. And he smells something doctrinally, uh, according to the truth that is, that is impure. And so the question for us is, you know, again, who is, who is he really targeting here and, and what's he, what's, what is he targeting? So here's, here's, here's what Paul is beginning to identify in Romans chapter 2. Like I said, he, he's narrowing his focus to this group of people. And here's what they're, here's what they're doing. They're, they're calling themselves Jews. They're saying we, we're Jews. And by all appearances, from, from a couple hundred yards away, they, they look, they appear, they talk like Jews. But they're really not. Okay? And what we're going to call them this morning, just for the sake of, of conversation, is we're, we're going to call them the, the religious moralists. I don't like speaking in isms, I don't like speaking in ists, because it means something different to everybody, but that's how I'm going to refer to this group of people. It's not, it wasn't bad to be a Jew, all right? but, they, but they looked like them, they sounded like them, but again, Paul is sniffing them out, he's saying, no, you, you spiritually stink, you spiritually stink, and the question is, is, is why? Why do they smell so bad? If they, they look like a Jew, why aren't they a, a real Jew? Well, let me illustrate it this way. We have a nine-month-old daughter 
And because of the early stages of her life, um, she, she loved to be held, okay? And if Paige is not holding her, usually I'm holding her. And what we found ourselves doing over these last couple months is when we put her down, um, she communicates to us very clearly um, that she does not want to be put down. And, and so what we do as parents, and you perhaps have done this with your children as well, she has favorite toys, and, and you, we put this one in front of her. It's a little mirror, and when she's done with that one, then we have this little fake iPod that plays Row, row, row your boat. And then we put that in front of her. And what we're just kind of doing is we just kind of keep throwing these, these toys at her to keep the angry baby happy, right? If we just keep her from crying, keep her from fussing. Here's all of our toys. And in a sense, when we talk about religious moralism, that's kind of what we do with, with the Lord. That's what we do with God. We sense his anger. We sense his displeasure. And we're going, well, let me just kind of keep throwing these things at you and, and make sure you're, you're not angry, you're not disappointed anymore, you're, you're, you're happy with me. I'm going to throw all these things at you, all these good works. And Paul says, there's moralism, there's such a thing as moralism, but inside the church there's such a thing that's called religious moralism. And so how does, how does that really look like for us? What does that look like for us in the 21st century? It looks like this. You know, God did something for me a long time ago, you know, 20 years ago. He, he saved me from my sin. And, and no doubt that's, that's probably true in your heart. But if you said something like this, it's, and ever since then, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just, you know, just trying to be faithful. You know, I'm just, try, I'm just trying to be good. I'm just doing the best I can. You hear what we're saying? We're saying, yes, God has forgiven me, but I, but I still sense his, his anger and his wrath. And, and so I'm not really sure about our relationship with each other, so I'm going to kind of keep throwing all these things at him. And make sure he's not angry with me anymore. Make sure he's not upset. Make sure we're okay. And we kind of throw these things at God. And Paul says to the Jew, and he says to us as Christians this morning, brothers and sisters, this ought not be. This is, this is not the good news. Uh, and, and so really what I want to do this morning is I want to put this idea of, of religious moralism, these throwing things at God under the microscope. So I want to look at three things. I want to look at the root, uh, simple points this morning. I want to look at the root, the problem, and the solution. Uh, the root to religious moralism, the problem of religious moralism, and the solution to religious moralism. Okay, the root. What's, what's the root of it? Uh, and, and doctors do this day in and day out. At least the good ones do, right? You, you come into the doctor's office and you have these symptoms. A bad doctor will just say, let's just take care of the symptoms. You know, if you've got a runny nose, if you've got headaches, let's just kind of get rid of the symptoms. Let's, let's manage your pain. What a good doctor will do is say, no, no, no. Let's get to the bottom of this. If we can find out what the root is, if we can find out what the cause, if we can find the, the starting line, then we can eliminate all of the symptoms. We can get you healthy again, right? And so the question for us this morning is, is, is what is the root of religious moralism? Where does it come from? Because we, we tend to assume that bad things come from bad things, right? Where does malaria come from? It comes from this little buzzing insect that inserts its needle nose in your arm and it makes you sick. Bad things come from bad things. You know, where does this cold virus come from? It, it comes from this little virus. You know, someone sneezes on the hand, shakes your hand, and so forth and so on. It, bad things come from bad things. And the question this morning is, is where does this religious moralism come from? And notice what Paul says here in verses 17 through 19. He, this is where he says it comes from. And ask yourself, as we read through this list of blessings that were given to the Jews, ask yourself, are these good things? <clears throat> Or are these bad things? Verse 17 and 19. But if you call yourself a Jew, and you rely on the law, and you boast in God, and you know his will, 
and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And verse 25, and they also have circumcision. Now the question is, is are these bad things? And we say from the rooftops, no. These were blessings given to God's people you know, all the way back in Genesis. They were given a title. You were to be called Jews, right? This was, a, this was a blessing, a designation. They were given the law. This was a gift from God. This was going to be Israel's, uh, the Jewish nation's constitution. This is how you will live. Your enemies will be defeated before you. All of these things are, are blessings by God. And so you do see the irony here? We tend to think bad things come from bad things. Where does this religious moralism come from? It comes from the blessings of God. And so we ask ourselves, then what's the problem here? Um, perhaps you've heard of this concept, repurposing. We have some friends in Louisiana who own this uh, furniture shop where they take discarded metal, discarded wood, and make brand new furniture out of it. And it's incredible. It's repurposed metal and it's repurposed wood, right? It's taking something that had an original purpose and changing the purpose of it entirely and putting it to a di- different purpose, okay? Repurposing. You see what's happening here? You see what, the, what these so-called Jews are doing? They're repurposing God's blessings, God's gift, having a name, having a God, having a constitution, having the ability to not only know the law, but the ability to even communicate it to other people. And what are they repurposing it for? Did you see it? It shows up in two places. Look with me at verse 17. And also in verse 23. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and what? And you boast in your relationship with God. Verse 23. You who boast, what? In the law. You see how it's being repurposed? What was the purpose of God's blessing in, 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 in the first place? Why was God blessing Abraham? Why was God blessing Israel? Why does God bless us? So that we might be a blessing to other people. What were these people using God's blessings for? They were using it to make themselves look good. They were using it to boast. They were using it to brag. What is the root of religious moralism? Where does this start? Here's the irony. It starts with the blessing of God. And so the question for us this morning is, who has been blessed by God? You and me. We have. So therefore, who can suffer from religious moralism the most? Who can suffer from this, Lord, let me just keep throwing things at you so you're not angry and that you're happy? Who can struggle with that the most? It's you and me. It's us. It's the informed. So what does this mean for us? Well, I heard one pastor do this and it kind of stuck with me. Um, Try to do this this week. Try to do something great. Try to do something good, and not for yourself, but for, um, but for a neighbor, someone you don't know that well. Maybe it's, you know, make it sacrificial, make it, make it pretty big. Uh, mow their yard for them. Um, collect some of their leaves for them. Do something big, and then try to do this. Try not to tell a single soul about what you did. Don't tell anybody. Do it in secret. What's so hard about that? We have this subtle way of when we do good things, of when we serve our neighbor, and when we're loving God, we have this same tendency. We want to boast. We want to brag about it. Well, how was your day at work? Well, 
It's great. Drove to the office. Rescued some stray puppies from a, from a uh, drainage ditch. And then I just did some emails. Whoa, 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 back up. What did you do? Oh, it was nothing. I just rescued some puppies. We do, don't we? It's, it's, it, we don't stand on the street corner. We, we, don't, we don't yell and scream with a megaphone. It's really subtle. We just kind of sneak it into a conversation. We're no different. We brag and we boast. Why? Because we're repurposing the law. We're re- repurposing these good things of God for whose glory? For our own. Where does it start? It starts with the blessing of God. And boy, that's a point that makes me very uncomfortable. I should make us all very uncomfortable. Okay, so if we do this with the law, if we repurpose the law, what, what kind of effect does this have on, on us and our community? Uh, how does this play out into um, this, this community in which we live? When we take the blessings of God and we repurpose them, not for his glory, but, but to boast uh, and to brag in ourselves, what happens? And, and Paul's indictment here is twofold, and it's quite strong. He says we're, we're hypocrites and blasphemers. Okay, we're, we're not mistaken. We're not, we're, we're not you know, just, just slightly ill. He's, he says, no, you're, you're a hypocrite. And you actually blaspheme God. Where do we see that? Look with me again at verses 21 through 23. And notice through these rhetorical questions, what is the truth that Paul is trying to get across? Listen to what he says in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? And you who say that one must not commit adultery... Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Now, we we tend to throw out this word a a lot, but we we call people hypocrites. We we suffer from it. We accuse other people of it. What is is Paul really referring to here in this passage? What is is his understanding of of hypocrisy? And And it's this. It's taking this thing that God has given us, this law, which is a gift from God, and it has purposes. And we, we talk about this sometimes in, in, in Bible study. What is the purpose of God's law? And one of it is, is to be a hammer, right? It is, it is to be a hammer on your hard heart and go, this is how I do not live up to God's standards. What are God's standards? When I read through them, we're supposed to go, don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that, and it destroys our pride. And here's what... Here's what the Jews, these so-called Jews, these religious moralists are doing here in this context, is is they've taken the law and they're not going to let it be a hammer to themselves. But instead they're going to turn around and they're going to be a hammer for somebody else. They're going to tell you, you better not commit adultery. You. And you better not worship idols. And you better be in church. And you better be doing this. And they start using the law as a hammer. On other people, instead of what? Instead of on themselves. What is Paul saying here about the human heart? He's saying there is enough sin in you, and there's enough sin in me to keep you and I busy on ourselves for the rest of our life. Did you catch that? There is enough sin in you, and there's enough sin in me, Jake, to keep me busy for the rest of my life. But the temptation for us is when we realize that we can't do it, We try to kill it on other people. And Paul says, you're hypocrites if you do that. Do you not see your own heart? Do you not teach yourself? It's hypocrisy at its core. Unfortunately, he does not stop there. He says, not only that, but you bring dishonor to God. 
and you blaspheme. And again, that's a word that's, kind of, that's been tossed around a lot. What, what does he mean by that? Look again at verse 24. He says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What does he mean here? Well, again, like we suggested earlier, these blessings of God are a good thing. And they start all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. If you've been in the Bible studies with us during the week, we've been studying the life of Abraham. And this is one of the benchmarks in Abraham's life. God calls Abraham not because there was something good in him, but because he says, to you, I'm going to start things off. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a name. Your descendants are going are to number the stars. Your enemies are my enemies. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a constitution. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And these are the blessings he pours out on Abraham, and he pours out on Isaac, and he reaffirms with Jacob, and he reaffirms with his son. The Lord is going to be committed to this covenant. But then there's this little clause at the end that we tend to forget, where the Lord says, this is why I'm doing this. This is why you're winning the spiritual lottery. It's so that through you, the nations are going to be blessed. Why did you win the lottery? Was it because there was something great in you that I saw, a divine spark? No, it's because through you, the rest of the world is going to be blessed. Why are you blessed by God? So that we might bless other people. And what happens if you're a hypocrite? What happens if you're using the law to beat other people over the head and you're not letting the law wreck you and break your hard heart? You're undoing God's plan from the beginning. Because these Gentiles have always been on the radar of Christians. And what do they say? We're more eager about the sin in their life than we are about the sin in our life. They're not buying what they're selling, right? And therefore, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. All right, so we don't just bring dishonor to ourselves or to our neighbor, but what we're actually doing is we're actually dishonoring the Lord himself. And and notice this, when you look at verse 24, is, is your verse 24 in quotations? It should be. Now, this is not Paul's original thought. This actually comes from Isaiah chapter 52. Signaling what to you and to me? This problem, this, this blasphemy, this, this trying to kill our sin on other people so that we can look good, this has been a problem in the church since the early days. This is not a, a, a first century church problem. This has been a problem for God's people since day one. And it's still our problem now. We, can't, we just can't wipe our brow and just go, man, I'm so glad Paul took care of this in the first century. Thanks, Paul. It's our problem now, too. All right, so then what's the, uh, what's the solution? What's the solution here? Well, I'm a, I'm a child of the 80s, and so as such, um, I became, a, and I still am, a huge fan of U2. One of my favorite albums is Rattle and Hum. And before, one of the songs on the album, you know, it's, it's taken from a live concert. You know, Bono, before they sing the song, he says, this song I'm about to sing, uh, Charles Manson stole this from the Beatles. And if you know the name Charles Manson, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, I think it's safe to say he was, you know, the leader of this cult. Many people were murdered. He had many adherents to this cult. And, and kind of the theme song, you know, that was attached to this cult and to this movement and to this man was the song by the Beatles called Helter Skelter, right? So that at any point, you know, after this whole uh, Manson cult issue was kind of in the past, any time people heard that song, you know what was immediately associated with that song? Murder, violence, psychosis, 
And Bono, he gets up and he says, hey, Charles Manson stole this song. He stole Helter Skelter. And we're stealing it back. We're stealing it back. We're not throwing it out. This song is beautiful. This song is great. Remember, it was written by the Beatles. And he said, we're stealing it back. It needs to be redeemed. We need to be reminded of, of why this was a good song in the first place. Charles Manson doesn't own this. We're going we're to take it back. In a sense, that's what Paul here is saying about Judaism. Whereas we're not throwing Judaism out. We're not throwing anything out. It, it just needs to be, we need to be reminded of, of what, it, what it truly is. It needs to be redeemed again. What is true Judaism? And for us, what is true Christianity? Notice how he starts in verse 29. He says, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. And, and before we just kind of go, this sounds like a Disney movie, you know, what, what is he getting at? And remember, the moralists, they're, they're, they're kind of working from the outside in, from behavior in. If, if I do good things, I'm a good person. And Paul's saying that's not how the economy works. In God's kingdom, he says it's actually backwards. It starts on the inside and it works its way out. And he elaborates on what this means here a little further. Look at the rest of verse 29. He says this is by the Spirit. Now what on earth does that mean? It's by the Spirit. Um, just for the sake of time, let me, let me just put it this way. You see what Paul here is doing? He is removing you and I from the equation altogether. We can't save ourselves. We can't muster up in ourselves an, an ability, a desire, an appetite for holiness. We cannot muster in and of, our, of ourselves a distaste for things that are unrighteous. There's really not much you can do. When it comes to your obedience, when it comes to your daily walk, when it comes to your life, this is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember who the Spirit was. This is the Spirit that hovers over the water at creation. He created something out of nothing. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And when it comes to the resurrection, who gets credit for breathing new life into this dead body? Who was Jesus Christ? Who gets credit for the resurrection? It's not Jesus. Who is it? He was raised to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul says is, is this is what resides in you. This is how you do things. This is where your strength comes. This is where your energy comes from. And to the moralist, and especially the religious moralist, this makes us very uncomfortable. Because yes, we're willing to give God credit for our salvation, but when it comes to personal holiness, that's because I get up early. And that's because I stay up late. And that's because I protect myself. That's because I guard my heart. What Paul here is saying is, you're fooled. It is not you. You don't save yourself. Nor do you practice obedience by yourself. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you know that that's what you believe? And how do you know that the Spirit is actually doing that within you? Look at the last sentence in verse 29. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the death of approval sucks. And that's a word that some of you probably in your home you don't use. And I'm trying to use it in a good context this morning, but... An approval suck is someone who lives and thrives off of what other people think about them. And what Paul here is saying, if, if that's you, you may be further from the kingdom than you think. Where does a Christian get his approval? Where does a Christian get his identity from? It comes from the Father. It doesn't come from other people. This is the death of approval from man. That's how you know um, the Spirit is doing work uh, in your heart. Incredibly condemning stuff. 
is it not? Um, a couple things that I want to close with uh, this morning. And another writer who, who commentates on Romans 1 through 3 made this brilliant point, And I want to address it with us this morning. I want to share it. This is his thought, not mine. He says, as he, as he kind of thought over you know, Romans 1 through 3, he says, Romans 1 through 3 is like a bomb, okay? And it's as if someone walks in this room and, and sets, and nobody's doing this, by the way. I feel like I have to say this. Everybody's okay. There's no bomb in the room. In the room. But spiritually, as if somebody walks in this room and places a bomb on the table, arms it, and walks away, we typically have one of two responses. One is to recognize the danger, and go, I'm going to get myself as far away from this bomb as I possibly can. Let me gather my loved ones and let me get there, not here, right? That's one response. Another response is, I'm a pretty smart person. I think I can disarm that thing. If I can separate it from its power source, if I can undo the clock, if I can disarm this thing, everybody will be safe. What Paul here is saying in the first three chapters of Romans, we try to do this to Jesus all the time. Jesus is that bomb, and he has walked into this room through Romans 1 through 3, and he's about to go off. And some of us, when we, when we hear Jesus, and we hear his wrath, and we hear his judgment, we try to, we're trying to get as far away from him as we possibly can. And we claim things like, that's so intolerant of him. How could a God of love be something like that? So I'm going to get as far away from him, his people, his church, as I possibly can. Others, others, others of us, we go, but wait a minute, I'm, I'm a smart person here. Does he really mean judgment? Or is he just being figurative? Maybe this, this whole hell thing, maybe this whole judgment thing is just kind of like a fable. He can't be serious. He, he certainly wouldn't, wouldn't do that to, to people who are ignorant, who, who, who don't understand. Surely this is not who God is. And we try to disarm Jesus, separate it from its power source, dilute it. We try to do that. What Paul here is, is saying is, Neither of those options are positive. Neither of those options are good for us. Instead, what we need to do is we need to walk up to this bomb that is Jesus Christ, hug it, and let it go off. Why? Because here's what it's going to do. It's going to obliterate your moralism. It's going to obliterate your self-righteousness. It's going to obliterate your abilities, your ego, and your pride. And it's going to replace it with what? His. We're being entirely removed from the equation. God saves us. God moves us into holiness. It is God who's going to rescue us into eternal life. What role do you play? Actually, very little. It is by His Spirit. It is by His power. And it is for His glory. And it is for His namesake. You notice that this, the end of this passage it spoke about this, um, this practice um, that the Jews would do called circumcision. Um, and, and, and now it has more medical reasons why we perform circumcision on, on boys. But uh, back in Abraham's days in the, in the first century, it actually had spiritual connotation. It was a sign. In other words, it was meant to signify something else. Okay? In and of itself, there was no power, like we talk about in baptism. But it signifies something else. And that's the heart of the matter. And here's what the Jews were doing. They were going, look, we got the law. I am a Jew. I mean, look at me. I'm circumcised. Not only do I know the law, but we have this whole economy set up around it, and I can even actually communicate it very clearly to you. And not only that, but I've got the scars to prove it. I've had flesh separated from my body. I went through a very painful experience to be who I am. 
And if that's what we're boasting, and Paul says, you, you've missed the heart of circumcision. It wasn't to point back to you. It was to point to someone else. Who is it to point to? And what Paul here is saying subtly, and he's going to make it more explicit later in Romans, is, is there's another person who came along whose flesh was separated, who poured out his blood. And he was the lamb. And he was Jesus Christ. This circumcision, this obedience, this right was never meant for you. For you to boast in or brag about. And we do that with our scars. We love to tell stories about our scars because it makes us look cool. It makes us look dangerous. And he's saying, no, there's a, there's a better scar to brag in. There's a better scar, a better wound to boast in. And that's the wound that Jesus Christ took as our lamb. In closing, in, in Revelation, um, on a number of occasions, it talks about this judgment, this wrath that is coming from God. And, and nobody can run from it. It's going to go off. Uh, but he says, this judgment comes from a lamb. The one who judges us is the lamb. And I don't know who you want judging you when it all comes down to it. But what the scriptures communicate to us is that the one who judges us is the one who sacrificed himself, who poured out his blood, who split his flesh. Why? So that you and I might have eternal life. So we can boast in ourselves, no. So that we might boast in him. That's who I want judging me. That's who we're to boast in as God's people. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, would you forgive us for, for we have often tried to change ourselves. We have tried to make ourselves more in your image through our own efforts, and we have failed, and we have branded ourselves hypocrites, blasphemers. We've dishonored you, and we've dishonored our neighbor. Help us by none other than the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, would you cause the Spirit to reside in us? Help us not to grieve Him. Help us to keep in step with Him so that when we boast, we may not boast in ourselves, but that we might boast uh, in you and what you've done on our, on our behalf. Lord, let that bomb go off. May we be comfortable uh, with the death of self and the life in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.